Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Sam Genoway. Sam is the author of The Disneyland Story, An Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream, Walt and the Promise of Progress City, Universal versus Disney, as well as many other books. Let's hear what he has to say about the disastrous opening of Disneyland. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So you've written a lot about Walt Disney and how he pursued his vision. Uh, other than loving Disneyland, like so many of us, what sparked your interest in him? Well, professionally, I was an urban planner before I retired. And if you're doing urban planning in Southern California, uh, you have to really understand Disneyland because that's what most people perceive as the perfect city. And so uh, it started just as an intellectual curiosity to identify the differences between the theme parks and the real world, lessons that could be applied. And then that just drove me down the rabbit hole to learn everything that I possibly could about the history of Disneyland, the hows and the whys that they did what they did. So could you give us some background on Walt Disney himself? Uh, Where did he grow up? How did he get his start? 
Sure. Uh, Walt was is, is a very special, unique human being, um, uh, and rightly so. He was uh, he was born uh, originally in Chicago, lived there for a couple of years before moving to um, Missouri in a small town in Missouri, where um, he had his sort of glory days. Then from there, he moved to Kansas City with his father, and um, and was and grew up from there and moved on. He was one of those kind of wonder kids. You know, when you think about the internet, the young like 20 something internet mogul, Walt Disney was that before the internet moguls existed. His success came when he was like 29 years old with Mickey Mouse. And then he became the the biggest star in Hollywood uh, for animation right after that. Uh, The way that he's been described to me by many of those that had worked with him is that Walt was just a dude. He was just a a regularly ordinary guy with extraordinary skills, with the primary skill being an amazing memory. He would go someplace or have a conversation and he would remember it to the nth degree. And this was both wonderful because it allowed him to store a lot of great ideas. It also freaked out most of the people who worked for him because he would have a conversation with somebody and then 15 years later be able to recite exactly that conversation. Um, so wow. it was a very, it was a very special skill that he had. Uh, Walt was a kind of this weird breed between a technician and an artist. He understood storytelling better than most anybody else, but he was also utterly fascinated by technology and the use of technology in order to tell stories with the idea ultimately being that if the technology faded and the story came to the forefront, then he's done his job correctly. He was definitely an innovator but an innovator in a sense that he would look around and see what was going on, then combine and recombine those ideas into something that would then be perceived as, as very new. Um, he was a, he was a really an amazing person. Um, not necessarily the easiest guy in the world to work with from all the Imagineers that I've talked to over the years, uh, very demanding, but that was because of his childhood. This is a guy who grew up poor who had a father who was always trying to seek the next new big thing, mm. tended to fail quite often, was very, very harsh to Walt. In fact, when Walt was in school uh, as, a, as a young man, as a young boy, uh, his father had a paper route and Walt had to deliver the papers twice a day, rain or storms. He was out there delivering newspapers and if he didn't get it done on time, his father would beat him. Wow. So um, he was driven from that poverty to show that, to try to basically be better than what his dad was. And that was his strong motivation. Uh, my experience with Walt wasn't so much with the movies, but it was pro just after World War II. Just after World War II, the Disney studio was really struggling. It was no longer terribly successful financially. The movies that came out during World War II were generally not successful. Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi was a success. But the markets were much diminished because of World War II. He he loved certain artists that were on his team, but he was very frustrated with many of his animators because they all went out on strike in the early 40s. And that really kind of took the wind out of his sails as far as being an animation person. Mm -hmm. So by 1948, and this was a real mind blower to me during my research, by 1948, Walt Disney really honestly thought that the Disney Studios was going to go under. (laughs) Um, He was no longer hip. He was no longer doing the cool animation. He was no longer winning the awards. He was the father of the boring Mickey Mouse. 
the, a character that became so diminished that he almost fell out of favor. You know, Donald Duck was a much bigger star than Mickey Mouse after World War II. And that's how Disneyland was born, basically out of desperation. Wow. So he, he, what was his vision and how was it different from other forms of entertainment at the time? Um, Walt became very, as a young man, he was utterly fascinated by trains. He, in fact, as a, as a teenager, worked as a news butcher on the Santa Fe Railroad, which is that he would go up and down the aisles with a thing selling cigarettes and apples and food and stuff like that. Uh, that project was financed by his brother, Roy. Walt completely spent all the money. Nothing has changed during their two relationship. Uh, so he's utterly fascinated by trains. And in 1948, he was kind of struggling, trying to think of what to do next. He knew he wanted to get into live films and kind of was sort of forced to do that because uh, the money that he had tied up in the UK was had to stay in the UK. That's why you got a bunch of uh, British based live movies. But he was fascinated by a few things. He was fascinated by trains. He was fascinated by amusement parks. When he was growing up in Kansas City, he and his little sister Ruth used to run and look through the fence um, at, at a, a amusement park and was just loved it, thought it was great and shiny. Couldn't afford to actually go to the amusement park, but he loved looking at it. Um, and then in 1948, he was kind of in a depression. It's one of the ways that Walt was so creative is that he would get really depressed and then something wonderful would come out of that depression. So in 1948, he was told about a giant railroad festival in Chicago. So he hooked up with one of his animators, a guy named Ward Kimball. Now, Ward Kimball was the first person in the United States to personally own a steam locomotive and have it in his backyard uh, <laughs> in San Gabriel. He had 800 feet of track and he had a train he called the Emma Nevada. And, and Ward, to kind of get rid of his stress, would leave the studio, go home and play with his big train. <laughs> Walt came over one day, first time in forever invited, and Ward said, hey, would you like to drive the train? So Walt's like, yeah, yeah. So they drove the 800 feet forward and then backwards and then forwards again and then backwards. Walt became completely fascinated by the trains again. So he and Ward packed up. They took a train to Chicago to this great, this great fair, railroad fair, where Walt was treated like a super celebrity. He got to drive the original train, the, which name escapes me at the moment, um, got to go visit all the different places. The railroad fair not only featured trains, but it had little worlds where you could go, for instance, to a prototype New Mexico. Pueblo or a Western town or an East Coast town, these three-dimensional sets where everybody was dressed in costumes and acted like they were part of that particular area. And, um, and he loved it. And, and he and Ward then moved over to Greenfield Village uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, part of the Henry Ford Museum, which was a collection of historic buildings, including the Wright Brothers Studio, um, uh, the, the, the courthouse where Abraham Lincoln used to do most of his court cases and uh, the Thomas Edison's uh, Menlo Park uh, factory and research lab. And that had a train in it and it had a river boat in it and it was a prototypical town, but with famous buildings. And he was really, really impressed with that. Mm. So that got Walt's creative juices flowing. So he started playing with two ideas at the same time. Uh, one of them was based on his fascination with little miniatures, and that was going to be uh, little dioramas 
kind of like the Thorn miniature houses that are in the Chicago Art Institute and in um, uh, the Phoenix Art in Art Museum that that they still exist. He loved these little miniature buildings and stuff that had kind of looked like somebody was reading a book and then they just got up. Uh, and you're looking and spying into their house. So he loved the miniatures. He loved the miniatures so much that he started manufacturing under a different name, little potbelly stoves and selling them in railroad magazines. So there are people out there that own little potbelly stoves that were handmade by Walt Disney. <laughs> they just don't know it. Wow. Uh, so he started working on this idea of little dioramas that would be put onto a train. The train would go from town to town to town stop and park people would come in they drop their nickels and then there would be like a little audio talking about uh you know the story that that particular diorama was so that was one idea that he was playing with and then he was also playing with the idea of having it not move around but make creating a little miniature city uh that would be in one particular place in the end he determined that the railroads would kind of screw him when it came to the fees for moving his trains around and that wasn't going to work out. So then he started to settle on the idea of another place where he could have a big train and that he could end up having a bunch of miniatures in this case, miniatures that were just big enough that you could walk into and which he can basically put you as the, uh, you as the visitor on the movie set where you can then play your part in the show. He started actually working on this idea prior to World War II because when he built his Burbank studio, he had enough excess land. He was thinking of doing an amusement park adjacent to his studio where people could come and visit Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse because he was getting so many letters. I mean, this, guy was, this guy was just weird enough that when he had his Hyperion studio in Los Angeles, he used to park a miniature car out in front for Minnie and Mickey. So people thought that Minnie and Mickey had driven to work. <laughs> so, so this was always in the back of his mind. He was always kind of toying with amusement parks and stuff like that. He was always toying with some sort of a playland for children where they can kind of connect with his cartoon characters. And that had been going on for a long time. But by 1948, it started to really boil up into something. Uh, and he became very, very serious about it. So what was the what was the construction like of Disneyland? How you know, how how long did he think it would take and when does the idea of the dateline broadcast emerge? Well, the whole thing was that he came up with this dream and the dream kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more expensive. And he had to try to figure out a way of having to pay for this thing. And so he ended up um, coming up with a program. They he had a couple of his guys draw up a, a draft of what this park should be like. And Roy Disney was supposed to go to New York and try to convince bankers to go ahead and fund this thing. But Roy recognized that talking about this just in words wasn't going to do it, that he needed some sort of illustration to take around with him. So Walt one day called up uh, one of his artists and had him come over to the studio. And this, you'll have to forgive me, it's been a while since I've written about this so the artist's name is escaping me um, um which is really sad oh herb ryman herb ryman he called up herb ryman one of his favorite artists and he said hey herb i've been working on this thing you know he had a couple of guys he only had like two or three guys really working on disneyland before he goes i've been working on this thing and we've been drawing up this stuff and we've been working on this idea i think it's really neat you should come see it herb's like oh that sounds great i'll come over he goes and while you're here i'd like you to help me out with it so herb arrives and Walt showing him all the different drawings that Marvin Davison and uh, um, a, couple, a couple of the other guys had been working on. And, and Herb Ryman says, that's really cool, Walt. It looks really neat. And then, then Walt turned to him and says, 
But I need you to draw what this whole thing would look like as an aerial, bringing it all together, all these different things together. And Herb's like, no, no, I can't do this. That's an impossible task. Walt started kind of almost tearing up, is my understanding, and being very sad and looked at Herb and going, I, I really need you to do this. And I'll be with you the whole time and I'll feed you sandwiches and cigarettes and we'll just get this done over a weekend. So that's what the two guys did. For one weekend, they sat together. Walt kept bringing in and describing what he was going to do. Herb would then draw it on this one big drawing. And it's a very famous drawing. And anybody who's really into Disneyland has probably seen it. It is an aerial view of what Disneyland could be. And it was an incredible drawing, an amazing drawing, a compelling drawing. So by the time that Roy went to New York, he started talking to the TV networks. And CBS says, now we're not interested. NBC said, now we're not interested. ABC, which at the time sucked, uh, went, yeah, I think we could maybe come up with something. We can come up with some money for you. So they came up with some money. They came up with some uh, guaranteeing some bank loans. And ABC is the one who got the ball rolling and gave Walt the money so that he could try to develop this part more fully. They booked the television show first. They set the date for the television show first and then worked backwards for the construction of the theme park. The thing was, as a project was a debacle from the very beginning. First of all, uh, Harrison Buzz Price, the consultant that worked with Walt on the economics of this, never a Disney employee, but worked with Walt was on over 200 projects, started doing charrettes with people who owned amusement parks and trying to describe what Walt was trying to do to figure out what would work and what wouldn't work. And to a person, Everybody who was already in the industry thought that Walt's idea was really stupid, was never going to work, was never going to make any money. That just empowered Walt. That just got emboldened. And he got very excited about the fact that none of these people liked what he was doing because then he thought he was doing the right thing. So they started drawing up plans very quickly and they started construction one year before the television broadcast. As construction continued for about the first six or so months, they were just basically tearing down trees and moving dirt around. There were points where Walt was looking into holes in the ground and starting to cry because he realized that he was sinking all of his money into stuff that the audience would never, ever see. He didn't. He was so used to movie backlots where you just slap up a facade of a building and you tear it down. He never really quite thought that these buildings had to last had to stand up during California earthquakes, had to be able to function when it was raining outside. And so this money was just a big, giant money pit. And he had thousands of guys working on the property. And they only had one year because they had the deadline for the television broadcast. And they had to meet that particular deadline. To give you an idea of just how far behind the eight ball they were, (laughs) at one point, they thought that they just weren't going to build Tomorrowland. They were just going to build a fence until TWA decided that they would spend money um, on the big ride, the Rocket to the Moon ride. And once the TWA came in and that money came in, all of a sudden Tomorrowland had to open. They started construction of Tomorrowland three months before the park opened. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, there are pictures of Walt Disney in the park three weeks before the park opened where nothing was built, nothing was planted. Um, this whole thing was just a super rushed project. It had issues such as uh, there was the strike from plumbers. 
And at one point, Walt had to make the decision of where to prioritize the plumbing. So his famous line was, well, people can drink Pepsi, but they can't piss on the streets. So he had the plumbers focus on the bathrooms and just not worry about drinking fountains, for instance. Mm. Uh, So the construction process was really, really rushed. There were all sorts of weird little problems that that happened during construction. And ultimately, that impacted the the live television broadcast, the preview day, uh, the day before the grand opening, the famous infamous day that I hope that everybody's had a chance to watch the video because it's just brilliant piece (laughs) of television. So could you walk us through that opening day, uh, especially what went wrong? Sure. Maybe what went right. (laughs) What went wrong? Where the debacle? Well, so leading up to it, the, 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 the park wasn't done. I mean, everybody knew the park wasn't done. Now, I'll give you kind of a nice fun story first that then leads into it. About three days before it was Walt and Lillian, his wife's uh, anniversary, 35th anniversary. And Walt invited many of his favorite people over to his anniversary product, property, his anniversary party, where they all got the very first ride on the steam, uh, the steamboat, the Mark Twain. And then they came into the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, where Walt had a fabulous party, had music playing, had entertainment. He was sitting up in the balcony of the Gordon Horseshoe, getting completely drunk, slid down a banister on the stage, dragged his poor wife up on the stage, thanked everybody for coming to the party, got rolls of paper that he had, you know, blueprints that he had. His daughter recognized that his dad was, her dad was completely drunk, and had worked with Debbie Reynolds to try to steal the car keys. They didn't have to steal it. Walt knew that he was hammered. So he just handed the keys over. And then Diane Disney Miller told me the story that they all piled into the car to drive back to the house in Holmby Hills. And Walt was using this roll of blueprints and playing it like a trumpet until they got to the car. They started driving off. Diane was driving. She looked in the rearview mirror. She saw her dad in the back completely passed out. <laughs> he was just dead tired. Then he go, woke up very early in the next morning, drove back down to Anaheim to try to keep pushing the, the, the project forward. He got so hands-on that the 20,000 leagues under the sea exhibit, Walt got in there, rolled up his sleeves and helped paint the backdrops for that because they were so short of people. So the television broadcast itself at the time was the most technically challenging, largest television broadcast ever, with the most cameras ever used in any broadcast up to that time. Any camera that was a television camera that was not being used for something else in Southern California was lent to ABC and Walt Disney uh, Productions in order to broadcast this television show. So the television show itself was a phenomenal technological challenge. And then to place that in a theme park that was then suffering from the hottest temperatures of the year, close to 100 degrees, where the asphalt had not uh, had not solidified enough so that women's heels were going through the pavement, where most of the rides in the park were not technically functioning. The uh, Casey Jr. train kept tipping over on itself. The Dumbo elephants kept cracking. The metal stress on the the elephants kept cracking, so they had to keep <laughs> welding those together. Um, nothing, nothing was working. And then you involve this incredibly technological program where, I mean, these were big cameras with big cables and lots and lots of people doing stuff there with the worst weather possible. And then to make matters worse, Walt's original idea was to 
have his favorite visitors and Hollywood stars get tickets, limited number of tickets, and then come in like, you know, batch A came in at nine in the morning, batch B would come in at 10, batch C would come in at 11, to have all that upturned by somebody printing counterfeit tickets, and then having everybody show up at the first thing in the morning anyways to do regardless of what their ticket. So the, the crowd was about three times the size that they were expecting. So you've got large crowds, hot weather, nothing actually working, most of the infrastructure not working. Oh, and let's not even talk about the idea that Cinder, that uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle had a gas leak <laughs> and there was the fear that that was going to explode <laughs> on live television. So there was that going on. The Mickey Mouse Club was there for the very first time to be on television and they were wearing their Mickey Mouse Club sweaters, which were thick wool sweaters when it was almost 100 degrees outside <laughs> uh, and people were passing out and stuff like that. Uh, all this kind of added up to this rather unique television program where the faults were right there on television. There would be cues where the camera would be showing nothing and there would be nobody talking or people missing cues. Um, there's, uh, there, <laughs> there were a lot of glitches that were going on during the show. Uh, it was, it was a, a really miserable day for everybody, but throughout the entire thing, as unsatisfied as Walt was with the production because he liked everything to be perfect, it ended up being watched by more people than almost any television show in the history of television, with almost two-thirds of the television audience watching this one show, something that would be completely unheard of today. And, and after this debacle, basically Walt spent six months at Disneyland taking every press person in the world around on personal tours to make up for the nasty comments they wrote about on that particular day. Wow. So, Sam, we have to ask all of our guest experts this question. Um, okay. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that is to blame for the disastrous opening of Disneyland. Who or what would that be? Wow, that is a good question. I just think it was it was show business. It's the con it's the concept of show business because unlike any other industry, when you have an opening date for the show, the show must go on. And they had had to commit to when this television broadcast was prior to them actually building the park. And Walt knew as a showman that the show had to go on. And as much as his guys were telling, man, can we just like put this off for a couple of weeks? We just need a couple more weeks to get this all done. Walt knew that the tradition of show business was no, the show has to go on. We've got to do our opening date. If it's all not working completely, then we'll fix it right after the grand opening of this thing. But for right now, the show had to go on. Combine this, 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 process of having the show go on and then having the technical glitches of building something that had never been built before and doing a television broadcast that had never been this complicated before and then having God throw in miserable weather and labor unions throwing in labor struggles and then people cheating on him by, you know, hopping the fence or using, which they happened quite a bit, people were hopping the fences and stuff. I mean, the freeway wasn't even built by then. The freeway is still under construction. So people were backed up for miles on the road. But the show had to go on. And at the end of the day, the show did go on. The broadcast did take place. 
It may not have been this perfect, smooth thing, which Walt made up for in 1959 when he kind of did the second grand opening of Disneyland. And that show is a far slicker show. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that before. But I would say in this case, it's just the show business tradition of it had to go. It had to happen. No I love what. it. I love it. Um, Sam, thank you so much for uh, all of your insight and for joining us today. It's been a thank delight you. talking to you. Very good. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With us today, we have producer Alex Paul. Hello, Alarmy. (laughs) Alex, wow. (laughs) He was amazing. I I mean... Yeah. We just, we, I wish we had, I don't know, three hours. I could really listen to him in. all day. Yeah. <laughs> and he gave so many interesting details about, I feel like there's so much to say about Walt Disney's like big dreams and his just like childlike obsession with trains and his visions being so counterintuitive to the amusement park industry. He just really went against the grain and, yeah, it it worked out well for him. It sure did. Um, I, I was, you know, what really jumped out at me was when Sam said that he would go into these depressions and then come out of them with some grand idea. And I, I, I feel like a big uh, part of it was that he would go, he went on this train ride, maybe perhaps during one of these depressions. It was like he let himself get out there, go see things, um, 
and that really inspired him in many ways. Like it was almost like his vision helped him get out of these depressions, like his drive. Yes. And he really let inspiration run wild. Like he wasn't afraid to dream as big as possible and do the most bizarre, like his obsession with miniatures, I think is really interesting. I agree. Like anything that's bigger than it should be or smaller than it should be. I'm like obsessed. I don't, as <laughs> I don't want it to be normal. I want it to be smaller and then it's so cute or bigger and it's so impressive. I, I, yes. I, now I was blown away when he said showbiz was to blame and I'm just hitting myself, not, liter- not, not literally hitting myself, but I'm just like, what an oversight. Of course, we've talked about this so many times that that idea of the show must go on. And of course, Disney had it ingrained in him. He was, you know, uh, uh, deadlines and 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 the he was a perform he had that knowledge of like showbiz where he was he wild kn- yeah, he was wildly drunk painting the backdrops himself. <laughs> like that is Hollywood. Your, that is for sure <laughs> like, you know, you know, regional theater classic situation. Like that is theater. That is not construction. Like I agree, like construction workers, right? They do not care about a deadline. No. If you've ever had any work done in your house, you know that for a fact. Yes. Everything goes wrong. And they're not like, well, we got to get it all ready by the time we said. It's just like, well, it will be six weeks later, two months later, five months later. But yeah, the show the show must go on mentality, I think was just a brilliant answer. Yes. And it, it just contributed to that, um, uh, well, you know, whatever, it's not finished, but we got to put, you know, just put on a smile and turn those cameras on and, and hope for the best. Um, I feel like now I know that we ended up sending Walt Disney himself to, uh, I'm sorry, the Disney delusion. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, Walt Disney himself w- was given the big slap. Yeah. Um, so delusion was sent to jail and Walt Disney was given the big slap. I wonder, well, I just love the, the and, and I feel like we didn't discuss that concept. The show must go on, which we've discussed so many times, but perhaps because it was more, uh, this was more in the context of a, a of a park or a building. We didn't see that aspect of of Disney, but which we should have. Um, I I'm gonna have to go with my gut and just send Showbiz to jail. <laughs> I love it. I mean, he <laughs> made a very compelling argument. It just really clicked, and it and it ties into. Walt Disney's character himself and Disney delusion. I think it's, we, it's all circled around there, but he really, the show must go on showbiz mentality is like such a concise way to say it. So, I mean, if you, if you alarm me, if you disagree, please write in, but I'm just going to have to make this gut, gut call and, and, and send them to jail. So I'm going to call it showbiz. You're going to the alarmist jail. Well, Alex, thank you so much for, you know, joining me today and um, helping with with this interview because it was just fascinating for me. He was amazing. This was such a fun episode. Nice breath of fresh air when no one dies. (laughs) It's always nice. It's few. They're few and far between. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And everyone, tune in next week because we are going to be discussing the Carlock disaster. Erios. Powered by ACAST.